0: John chapter 1, starting at verse 14, Paul writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace." For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And so the Apostle John expands upon the concept of God incarnate. God who came in the flesh and ministered amongst the people. Now, again, as I pointed out in our studies in the Gospel of John, John is pointing out the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he went to write his epistle, we are told specifically that 1 John was written that the believer's joy would be full, that our joy would not be in anything of this world or anything that we are able to do, who we are, or anything else, but our joy would be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just as he proclaimed the deity of Christ in his gospel, and then built upon that, he did the same thing in his epistle. And we see the profound effect that Jesus Christ had upon the apostle John. John had that complete understanding that truly Jesus, not just a man, but also God, in his epistle, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4, through says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon." and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, or it was revealed, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And the only way that man can have full joy in the midst of all that goes on in a lifetime is in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what is he doing? He's showing the reality in his epistle, the reality of Jesus incarnate or of God incarnate, how God truly has come in the flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 14, I just read, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt amongst us. Now we've seen in previous studies, I think this is our fourth study in this first chapter, we have seen that both Jew and Greek would recognize the term, the Word, as both creator and controller, or the sovereign. That would speak to both cultures. And so for the Jew, it would reference back to the Old Testament. To the Greek, it would reference to what he's been searching for. The Greek, Well, he's been searching for the meaning of life. He's been searching for what controls life. When John, I'm sorry, when Paul was writing to the church at Colossae, he wrote in chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. When he says image, he means exact representation. When you see Jesus Christ, you see God. For by Him, by Christ, all things were created that are in heaven, and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. Verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. When it says all things consist, next to that you could also write all things are held together. And so what the Greek was looking for, he was looking for the, the basis of all creation, and he was examining No, the things that he could see. He was examining dirt. He was examining water as origins of life and all of these things. Well, all things are held together by the Lord Jesus Christ who created all things. So John, the Apostle John, is going a little bit deeper, speaking to both the Jewish mind and also the Gentile mind. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the word. How did you know grace? How did you know truth? You knew it through the word. And then we see the term became in verse 14. And the word became flesh. Well, we know the scriptures, the totality of the scriptures. How did the word become or how did it acquire flesh? Well, we know he acquired flesh through the natural childbirth. Now, it was a virgin birth, but he still came into the world the way everybody else came into the world. Galatians four four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, in our first study, we saw that Jesus existed in eternity past, in the beginning, not just the beginning of creation or the beginning of time, but eternity past. The word existed before creation, at creation, and continues to exist today. Now, in Old Testament times, when man saw God, as we read through the Old Testament, now, we saw again in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. Now, in the Old Testament, when man saw God then, putting all that together, who was he seeing, in fact? He was seeing God incarnate. He was seeing Jesus Christ. God the Father his holiness, and man cannot stand in his presence. Jesus Christ, the Son, is the visible person of that holiness. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the person of the power of God's holiness within us. And so Jesus is the visible image, not just an exact representation, not just a copy or a painting or a picture, exact representation of holy God in a way that man is able to perceive. And so a few instances we see that Jesus, well, he was the angel of the Lord. In Genesis 22, 15 through 16, then, and it says the, as in one and only, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. And so we have this picture of the angel of the Lord. Now, why would he be called an angel? Well, it's not an angel as in an angelic being. Angel in Hebrew and Greek, it means messenger. He's the messenger. The messenger, the messenger who brought the word. He was manifest as king. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's what Isaiah, or who Isaiah, saw seated upon that throne. In Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with his glory. So what did Isaiah really see when he saw him? Well, the Scriptures tell us. John tells us a little bit later in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 37 through 41. It says, But although he had done so many signs before then, speaking of Jesus, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. Now that quote, verse 40, is from Isaiah chapter 6. And then in verse 41 here in John, it says, These things Isaiah said when he saw His glory and spoke of Him. And so John's telling us that Isaiah saw Christ. It was Christ that was revealed. Again, the image of the living God. He could not stand before the presence of the totality of the holiness of God, but the totality of the holiness of God was presented in a way that man is able to comprehend in Jesus Christ. Now John says, the Word has acquired flesh. The man, God, Jesus the Christ has come into the world fully God, fully man. Once again, if you want to know the basis of who somebody is or what somebody believes, who do they say Christ is? I mean, that, that'll tell you a lot about anybody. You don't have to be talking about religion. Whatever it is that you might be talking about, when you find out what they believe concerning Jesus Christ, you'll understand the basis for what they believe, the thesis, if you will, as John is presenting his thesis here. It depends upon what, who, who they believe Christ is. That will help you to, to understand where they are coming from or understand their worldview. If Jesus was not fully man, if he was not incarnate, then man is unable to really have a personal relationship with God. If he was not fully God, then Christianity is just another relationship based upon some man's ideas. But he is God incarnate. Now, if he is God incarnate, then any other religious idea, anything that contradicts the word of God, regardless of the arena that the thought originates in, is false. And so, we base our beliefs upon truth. And since we base our beliefs upon truth, it extends to so many different areas of who we are. Gay marriage. The Bible explains gay marriage. Uh, not gay marriage, but understand, uh, explains marriage. And so because of that, I understand marriage. My worldview is a biblical worldview, so that would extend into that issue. And so that's a non-issue to me personally. I don't struggle with that. I know what God's definition of a marriage is, and I, I stand upon that. The abortion issue. Where do I stand upon that? Well, he told the the prophet Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. And so that defines my position upon. So my position is defined based upon what my worldview is. And if I have a biblical worldview, that is going to define so many things. It's going to define my relationship with my wife. We looked at a woman's role in the church a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning. And so I can... Honestly say these things, how we conduct our church is because this is what the word of God says. My parenting, I parented the way I parented because that's what the word of God, that's how it directed me to do so. I conduct myself or conducted myself out in the business world because the Bible showed me how I need to conduct myself out in the business world. As far as a pastor, the Bible shows me how I am to conduct myself as a pastor. We'll be looking at that this Sunday morning in First John chapter 3. And so now, the Apostle John, what he is going to do... Well, last week, he brought the witness of John the Baptist. Remember, we looked at John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament type of prophet, but the first of the New Testament type of witness. And really what he's doing is, that was a bridge of the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament witness in John the Baptist. We get a little picture of that again in verse 15. John bore witness of him. When he says John, he's speaking of John the Baptist here, of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. So again, he's speaking of past and present. He's speaking of the Old Testament prophecies of Christ and the reality of Christ's coming. So he brought John the Baptist in as that witness. Now, today, he's going to bring the witness of the Old Testament into the equation. Now, he's going to use John the Baptist's witness more, and he's going to use the witness of the Old Testament throughout all of his gospel, but now he is presenting it to us. He's presenting it to us, and again, the reason that he is presenting it to us is to show us that this idea of incarnate God, of God in the flesh dwelling amongst man, is not something he's just come up with. This has been something that has been brought into humanity so many years ago. And so again, in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And so John wants us to know this is not a new concept that he is bringing to our ears. Even if you're just hearing this, if you would be hearing this, the the concept of God incarnate for the very first time, this is not a new concept. John is showing that this, again, is God's plan from the beginning. So... He says that the word, Jesus Christ, dwelt amongst us. That word dwelt in the Greek can be translated tabernacled. That the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So, tabernacled, that word tabernacle, it means dwelt in a tent. And that makes even a little bit more sense as far as to the Jewish mind. And the word became flesh and dwelt in a tent amongst us. Well, both, well, Peter and, well, Paul. Paul used that that description to describe a a, a physical body. He spoke of his tent that one day was going to be destroyed. But here, this goes a little bit deeper. And really what this is, and what John is attempting to do, is to take the Jewish mind, or the mind that is learned in the Old Testament, and bring us back there to see this concept of God dwelling amongst his people, and how it all fits together in Christ, and in the Scriptures, so that he's presenting this concept, and this concept would be received as truth. So it's a direct reference back to the tabernacle described in detail in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Now, we studied that back in the early 2000s, and we see throughout this description of this tabernacle, it's a detailed description of the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. And so, what was the purpose for the tabernacle? Remember, they're wandering in the wilderness, and God commands him to build a tabernacle. Well, the purpose is, is for God to dwell amongst men. So, to a Jewish mind, you're bringing him back to the tabernacle. He remembers what the tabernacle is. Tabernacle, the express purpose for God to dwell amongst his people. If you recall, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, the race of the Jewish people is established through Abraham. They go into Egypt in Exodus. We see that they're brought into captivity and made slaves. But God supernaturally delivers them. As he delivers them, he gives them the law. Why? Because he wants them to be his people, and he wants to be their God, and he wants to dwell amongst them. So this is what is necessary, the keeping of this law. Well, man has a problem. He can't keep the law, but he wants God to dwell amongst them. So what do we do? Well, we entered into the book of Leviticus that presented the sacrifice Because of the breaking of the law. So, you're God's people. He's delivered you. He wants to dwell amongst you. Here's the law, what is necessary for him to do so. But if you break the law, here's the sacrifice that is necessary to be offered. Then, the book of Numbers, that was their journey in the wilderness. Deuteronomy, which literally means the second giving of the law, because they didn't just want God to dwell amongst them in the wilderness but they were going to enter into the promised land and they wanted God to dwell amongst them in that promised land. (coughs) Excuse me. So Deuteronomy, there was the second giving of the law just before Joshua, just before they entered into the promised land. Now, when the Lord told Moses to build this tent, now it was going to be the temple later on, a permanent structure, but now they're wandering in the wilderness, got to be a tent. Why? Because it has to be portable. And so... What is necessary for God to dwell amongst the people? Well, the Lord speaks to Moses and tells them, you need to build this tent, this tabernacle, and you need to do it to my specific instructions for two main ways. Well, number one, for God to dwell amongst anybody, it's got to be done his way and not man's way. And then number two, every detail would have to point to Jesus Christ. Every detail of that would point to Jesus Christ because John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is equating the Lord Jesus Christ and this earthly body, his incarnate body, with that dwelling place so many hundreds of years before. Now, I've made a list of some of the specific instructions that were given to Moses in the building of this tabernacle. First of all, there was the interior, Now, the interior was to have a backdrop of fine linen. Fine linen is a picture of the righteousness of God. It's completely white, completely pure. And so as you would go into this tabernacle, inside the cover that you would see from the inside would be this white, bright white linen. Now, upon that linen would have tapestries. And the tapestries would be of blue, purple, and scarlet. Blue, Blue is symbolic of God who was Lord of the heavens. There was the purple. Purple was a picture of the Lord's deity, that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the scarlet, we know it points to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There would be prominent metals inside of that tabernacle, gold, silver, and bronze. Gold, once again, is that which is fit for a king. Silver speaks of absolute purity And bronze speaks of judgment. So we've got a few descriptions of the Lord here. Righteousness. He never sinned. Completely pure. Lord God of the universe, the color blue. Purple speaks of his deity. And scarlet, it speaks of the blood. Gold speaks of a king. Silver speaks of purity. And bronze speaks of judgment. Now on the outside, you would see... Well, just think if you were... I pointed this out before you're an inhabitant of the land and you hear there's millions of jews coming through your land and you heard that it was their god that supernaturally delivered them from egypt the most powerful nation in the world i want to see this god this god must be an amazing god and so I want to see well, what, what, what memorial have they built to him? What 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 dwelling place? I've heard God dwells amongst them. What is this dwelling place? And so you would approach them, and if you'd stood on a hill, if you recall the layout of the tribes, we saw this in our study of the book of Numbers. It was in the shape of a cross, and there was the tabernacle right in the middle. And you'd be excited, go and look, and you'd see, and is that it, just this, this tent, and this tent would be covered with ram skins there would be one layer of ram skins, more than likely referring back to Genesis 22 when it says God will provide himself for an offering. And what did they find in a thicket? There was a ram who was caught in a thicket who was sacrificed instead of Abraham's son. But over the ram skins would be badger skins. Badger skins, I don't really know exactly what it is, but it's more than likely probably a rock badger of the day, and it had some kind of waterproofing properties. But again, they were just gray. There was no beauty within that at all. And so you would be looking at these things as an outsider, and you're thinking, what do they think of this God? This is a God who delivered them, defeated the most powerful nation in the world, and this is the place that they keep them? Because of the the, the the Gentiles, of the of the heathens of the land, they would make these ordinate temples. But there's this God. Well, we know that no outsider is ever really going to understand. And we know that when Christ came. It says just previously in John, his own did not receive him. They would look at him and say, this is supposed to be God? And then the Gentiles, the Romans of the day, this man is supposed to be God? When Pilate interviewed him, he saw nothing special there. Well, for the tabernacle back in Moses' day, if you would talk to that person, if you were a Jew, <coughs> this, this man would tell you, this is what you presented to your God, and you say, oh, you should see it though. You, you can't see it from the outside. See, to see the beauty, you need to enter in. And it's the same thing with Jesus Christ. From the outside, you're never going to know. You're never going to really understand. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to be a good man. He's going to be a philosopher. He's going to be whatever it might be. But until you enter in, you're not going to see the beauty of the Lord. Until you entered into the tabernacle, you wouldn't see any of the metals. You wouldn't see any of the fine linen. You would not see any of the colors. You would just see badger skins from the outside. And so you see that correlation of everything that was inside and how it pointed to Christ and how you needed to come inside to truly see Christ. I can relate to that. I knew of Jesus Christ, but I did not know Jesus Christ until I got saved, until I entered in. And now, as I have entered in, daily I continue to see the beauty of the Lord. We'll get a little bit of a picture in that a little bit later on. The superstructure of everything that was built, of all of the furniture and even the tabernacle itself, was acacia wood. Now, acacia wood is something that grew out in the wilderness. It wasn't good for a whole lot of things. It wasn't good to burn. It burnt pretty quick and not very hot. It wasn't anything that you could really carve upon or anything like that. But Isaiah 53, verse 2, I think it describes, as it's describing the Lord there, I think it's describing acacia wood as well because this is the body of the tabernacle. This is the body of the altar. It's the body of the furniture. It says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Well, from what I have read, that describes an acacia tree. acacia tree is not a very attractive tree. My wife and I, we went and saw the sequoias up in Yosemite. uh, I think it was like in 2010. And you're driving to the park where they are at. The Mariposa Grove is where we went. And okay, I want to see, I want to see. I don't know if I've ever seen a sequoia. I think I have, I just couldn't remember. But you're driving through all these trees and there's some redwoods, there's a lot of cedar trees. And then all of a sudden, when you see one, you know it. And these are huge, beautiful, magnificent trees. Now, if there was an acacia tree next to it, you probably wouldn't even see it. You wouldn't pay attention. You don't pay attention to the shrub, and everything that's around there. And that's the idea behind this acacia wood. See, it's not an exterior attraction of the Lord. It's who He is. It's not what He looks like. And then inside of the tabernacle, you would have the anointing oil, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. You would have the incense, and the incense represents the prayers of the saints. The recipe for the incense was not to be duplicated anywhere else. It was to be unique, to the tabernacle, when the priest would smell it, he would be reminded that he's representing the people. (coughs) There would be the gems that would be on the breastplate of the priest. The gems represent God's treasure or God's people. He would be reminded that I'm representing the tribes, the twelve tribes of Israel. There was the ark, and that was considered to the Jewish mind to be the throne of God. The table of showbread points to Jesus Christ as the bread of life. The lampstand points to Jesus Christ as the light. The bronze altar, the place where the sacrifice was killed, that equates to the cross of Jesus Christ. The laver, the laver speaks of that needed washing that we have through the Word of God. And that's what we studied when we looked at the book of Exodus. Every detail of the tabernacle we saw, it points to Jesus Christ. So what the Apostle John is doing, he's just simply working backwards. He's saying that he tabernacled just as surely as God tabernacled amongst His people way back when. When? God tabernacled amongst us through Jesus Christ. Again, John 20:31. But these things are written. John's saying, I've written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, make no mistake about it. When He calls Him the Son of God, He's referring to Him as God. He has the same, as we'll get into this, the same essence and the same nature as the Father. Again, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now, it's interesting that John says, and we beheld His glory. Where did He behold His glory? Well, the we here is Peter, James, and John, and the place that He beheld it is in Matthew chapter 17, if you'll go ahead and turn over there. Matthew chapter 17. Now, when we were in Israel, we were on Mount Megiddo. Megiddo overlooks the valley of Armageddon. And if you look across the valley, you can see where the Lord was raised. You can, you can see, uh, um, I was going to say Nazareth, I was going to say Bethlehem. Nazareth, is it's right there. And the Lord, all the time when he was being raised as a child, could look back over this valley where he's going to come back. But then you can see Mount Gilboa. And then next to Mount Gilboa is this one little mountain. It's kind of like a half a dome kind of a thing. And if you were there on Mount Megiddo looking over at that mountain at a certain period of time, you would see something glowing upon that mountain. And what it would be? It would be the glory of God as the glory of God was revealed to Peter, James, and John that one day on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that's what he's talking about He's talking about when he saw his glory. Well, in Matthew, well let's back up a little bit. In Matthew chapter 16 verse 28, oh, verse 27. And the Son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his work. And surely I say to you there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of man coming in his kingdom. Now when it says kingdom it's a Greek word basileia. Basilia means glory, his glorious kingdom. Those who were standing there would not receive, or receive death until they saw the glory of the Lord. Well, then chapter 17, they did it in six days. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led him up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. Now, what that means, we're not going to get into a... Big study here in chapter 17. But Jesus, for that moment, he received his spiritual body. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Moses and Elijah, Moses would represent the law, Elijah would represent the prophets. They were speaking to him, probably speaking to him of his manner of death. Verse 4, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, three dwelling places, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter, as always, spoke before he understood. He didn't understand. Jesus was not to tabernacle amongst three. He was to stand out above the other two. While he was still speaking, Peter, you got it wrong, and here the Father's going to correct you. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear him. Because Moses and Elijah, they were all speaking of the coming of Christ. But now Christ is among you. He's among you. He had spoken earlier of his death. And now what are they finding out? There is life After death, Jesus said, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And where I am, there you will be also. One day they will come and and dwell amongst Christ. And so it was necessary for them to understand that there is life after death. They got a picture not only of Jesus's glorified body, but also of Moses and Elijah. What does that mean? That means that Moses and Elijah at that time, and even till today, they still exist. We know they exist in the presence of the Lord. And so that tells me anybody who is a born-again believer that has died before this day, they still exist. They exist in the presence of the Lord. Scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so what Jesus is doing, he's offering hope. And it stuck with John. I saw, I saw his glory. Matter of fact, it didn't just stick with John. it also stuck with Peter in Second Peter chapter one, verses 16 through 18. "For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty." Peter saying, "I saw him. Not only did I see him, because I was there with him for years, but I saw his glory." It had a profound effect upon the life of the Apostle Peter that later on he would still be referring back to that. And the same thing for the Apostle John referring back to that one event. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is His visible majesty. It's the purity of God. It's the holiness of God. It's the only way that man is able to perceive God in His complete and unadulterated Godship. And so it's that which man can... I I can't explain it to you because the Bible can't explain it to me other than it's the ultimate impurity. So all this now would reference back to the Jewish mind. We're looking at the proof or the witness of the Scriptures. Reference back 1,450 years before when the tabernacle was complete. Again, in the book of Exodus, this time in chapter 40, Moses had finished the tabernacle and, well, let me get there and I'll read it to you. Chapter 40, verse 34. Moses had caused the tabernacle to be built and now they're offering it to the Lord. It says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so, it's as if there's this body, and now the glory of the God, He inhabits that body. Jesus Christ, there's that human body, but make no mistake about it, the glory of God inhabits, not just God-possessed person, but truly God, but you see what I'm saying. The glory of God dwells inside. (coughs) So again, It's all about the witness of the Word showing who Jesus Christ is. In John chapter 2, verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest or revealed His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Second Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord." just as truly as God inhabited that tabernacle, now God inhabits us, that we are able to display the glory of the Lord. You're probably not going to glow in the dark or anything, but you can still project the majesty of God to this dying world. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. The idea is not lacking at all or not lacking ever. God is always gracious and God is always truthful. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So there's a correlation here. Now, in both Jewish and Greek cultures, at that time, a person's name would reveal the essence and the nature of a person. Abraham, that name means father of many nations. Jacob, that name means heel catcher. He was always conniving. Moses, it means drawn out. We know he was drawn out of the river. David, beloved. He was a man after God's own heart. And then Michael means godlike. As you can see why my parents would name me Michael. What's so funny? Right, Mike? Yeah, see, he agrees. My first name, I got my first name and last name, Michael Ursioli. My first name, that denotes my nature. You think of me as Mike. I mean, people know Mike, and, and you, when you think of Mike, you think more than likely of my personality and pastor and all of that other stuff. My last name, it denotes essence. Now, my last name, Ursioli, that would speak of, well, My father. And if you would look at my father and you'd look at me, you'd see that we have the same eyebrow. We have a unibrow kind of a thing. And it's got a little flurry thing that is right there. You would notice certain aspects of myself that would relate to my father. So my name, a person's name, it denotes nature and essence. And so this is a person who is all grace and all truth. Now, once again, we've got Old Testament connotations that it would bring back And I've pointed this out time to time, so many times, I'll just kind of go through it very quickly. When Moses wanted to see God, how did God reveal himself to him? Now again, he got a little bit of a picture of the hind part of his glory. But that has isn't how man is able to perceive God. Man is able to perceive the nature and the essence of God by his name. So when God was asked to reveal himself to Moses, he did so through his name. It says in Exodus 34, verse 5, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, stood with Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Here's the name of the Lord. Here's the nature and the essence of God. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now he's just by no means clearing the guilty and visiting the iniquities of the Father upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what did Moses do at the revelation of God? Verse 8, So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and he worshipped. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Are you, Do you despise the riches and goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance? So, so at the name of Christ, we see the goodness of God as revealed to mankind as there is salvation in His name. John chapter 20, verse 31 again, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And how do we have life? By grace and in truth. What is His grace? Most of you know, His unmerited favor. If we deserved it or could work for it, then God would be in debt to us. But it's that which God gives to us freely because we are all undeserving of the grace of God. In fact, it is only grace when you are not worthy of the gift and are deserving of opposite. And so as I come to the realization that I'm a sinner, it's then that I am open to receiving the grace of God. Mercy, well, again, there's that way that I go about keeping the difference in my mind between grace and mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So what's mercy? It's mercy that keeps us out of hell. I'm not getting what I deserve. It's grace that gets me into heaven. Through grace, I get that which I don't deserve. Now, in actuality, there are two forms of God's grace. It says, and of His fullness we have all received and grace for grace. This is grace exchanged for grace. So, first, there is common grace. What's common grace? Common grace is every breath that you are able to draw in an unsaved state. In an unsaved state, you were deserving of death. And it's the grace of God that allowed you to live until the day of your salvation. Until the day that you were able to make a choice from God. Because why did I deserve to live all of those days, all of those years that I did live in an unsafe state? It's because God was pursuing me. God was seeking me out. God was chasing me, if you will, and even in my unbelief. Yet while you were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And so that's that. Common grace, that grace that is available to all of mankind. Why? Because God desires for all to be saved. Jesus is potentially the Savior of all mankind and actually the Savior of those who believe. So everybody has that potential that they can turn from their sinful life and turn from Christ. So every breath that you're able to draw in an unsaved state is by the common grace of God. But we exchange the common grace for saving grace. For those who are born again believers, we now have the saving grace of God. That which is able to produce the effect of salvation in our lives. It's available to all, but limited to only those who receive it by faith. For grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So not only is He gracious, but He's also truthful. Now, do you remember quite a few years ago, they had something called outcome-based education, and it was kind of just just the raw basis of it. It's If you believe something enough, then it would be true. I mean, if you really believe that three plus two equals six, then uh, I don't understand the whole thing, but it was really quite foolish. Well, the nature of truth is, if you have truth, then anything contrary, opposite, or other than that truth is false. It's false. Now, Jesus is filled with truth. He is the epitome of truth. And that means that anything contrary to that truth is false. And it is contrary to Christ. So you look at our society today. Is our society a godly or a godless society? Well, it's contrary to the truths of Christ as it is contrary to the truths of Christ, it obviously is not of the Lord. John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 1 John 5, 6, This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit Is truth. We have the Holy Spirit through the word of God that brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are true. And we have 2,000, give or take, years to understand these things and see how these things permeate the lives of mankind. I was listening to something somewhere which I really don't remember where. And somebody says, you need to prove to me the existence of God. Well, God has proven to me the existence of God because I see his truths and I see how his truths are real in my life. I see how these things have never proven to be false and how they have worked and proven themselves for what they are through every aspect. As I have clinged to these things, as we have prayed, we've seen prayer answered. As we have walked in the ways of the Lord, as a people, we see that we had a better nation, we had a better society and I just see the reality of these things to such a degree that they're undeniable. And unfortunately, I also see it in the antithesis of that. I see as people reject the Lord and the things of the Lord, how we are a cursed people, not curse as far as God raining curses back, but we become a godless society living amongst godless people. The truth, the truth is that which comforts us, it convicts us, it guides us, it leads us. And it can even tear the heart out of your chest as it should have done on the day of your salvation. A lie, the best a lie will do is offer you temporary comfort, but it will lead to destruction in the end. John 8, 44, Jesus confronting the religious community that were contrary to the truths of God. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it and so the apostle john wanting to display jesus christ as god incarnate using the witness of the old testament verse 14 and the word that which he has been speaking about became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld we were there we beheld again first john chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, John the Baptist, bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. He who comes after me, Jesus Christ, is preferred before me, that which the prophets have spoken of, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. His fullness is His deity. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus has declared God the Father. Declared, he has provided detailed information. What did he say to Thomas? You have seen me, you have seen the Father. It's through Jesus Christ that we know God. How has He done this? Verse fourteen, his glory, and we'll see his glory we'll see the witness of the miracles to come through truth, the Word that has been delivered to mankind and by grace, the salvation that we have seen and so we should be able to relate to these things we've seen we've seen miracles. you see a miracle all the time every time you see somebody saved every time you see somebody saved that's a Honest miracle that has come from God. That life has been transformed before your very eyes. His truth, you've seen it. How was it done? How was that person saved? Simply by the word of God. It's the word of God that is powerful and it's living. And then the grace of God, there's not a one of us that deserved to even be sitting in this room right now. There's not one of us that deserved to be able to call ourselves a born-again Christian. But it's only by the grace of God He gave us the right to become children of God. Father, we just thank You again, Lord, for who You are. We thank You, Lord, that You reveal these things to us. And Father, we repent that, Lord, that we don't know these things and that we don't embrace these things to the degree and magnitude that we should. But just as John, you can see the excitement in his writing, just as he's excited about this, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would not just receive these things as routine, but we would be excited about them and understand the reality of our Savior. And so, Lord, just as John was, was showing the, that Jesus Christ, the God, the Son of God, came for all of mankind, we should be excited to have the same witness, to present our thesis of who Christ is and then present the proofs. And I pray, Father, that the proof of our life and our manner of living would be that which would speak volumes, that we would be prepared for Your Word and that Father we would display your glory to all Lord who come in contact with our lives and so <coughs> excuse me and so Father we just thank you for this evening we pray that you would bless us as we go, but prepare us Father for all good works we ask in Jesus name amen You'll-